0: Tonight, John 1, verses 1 through 18, as we continue thinking about the Bible. And we come sort of to a pivot in our week because we've thought about the way the church and Christians have historically thought about the Bible, and then we've looked <clears throat> at the way the Bible thinks about itself. Um, and tonight, we want to think about how Jesus thinks about the Bible. And I, In John 1, we see something really marvelous happen, and that is that God recognizes that just sort of this bare and yet powerful, the most powerful thing ever created word, it needs to be made flesh. And in John 1, we're told how Jesus actually is the Bible. Um, And so I want you tonight with me, before we go to dinner, uh, to learn what it means that God took on flesh and bone, and that that flesh and bone, that the Word, that Genesis 1 Word, that spoken Word of God became flesh. So let me read for us John chapter 1, uh, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we've all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word. We thank You, Heavenly Father, for the day You've given us, for wind, overpowering wind at times, and rain, and messiness, and for the joy and challenge that brought into our lives today at Laguna. We thank You now for this room, and we thank You for the Bible, Your Word, and particularly the first verses of John, which teach us that Jesus took on flesh, that the Word was flesh, that Jesus was the Word. And we pray as we think about Jesus being the Word and the Word becoming flesh, that tonight we would learn more of what it means that You have given us the Bible. You have given us Your Word. And You have given us Jesus. Help us to know this, we pray, Jesus. This in Your name. Amen. Uh, After my sophomore year, I attended Clemson University in South Carolina. And after my sophomore year... Got a job working a road construction uh, for Stockman Construction. And we were working on Interstate 77 as it comes down from Charlotte into Columbia, and that's where 77 ends. And um, it was a pretty dreadful job, to be honest with you. Uh, It's a a great thing to be in construction. It's a great thing to be in road construction. It's not a great thing to be the college, the, the guy finishing his freshman year in college who all sort of the salty guys who work on the road construction crew want to punish for you being in college. So I got all the cruddy jobs. But the, the worst part about that summer was that I had a boss, and I want to be very careful, but he was just a bad boss. It, wasn't, um, it was not only that he was a bad boss, he was kind of a bad person. So for instance, he would show up at the work site and he would give us something very difficult to do, Like, I need y'all to grade the side of that hill, and then John, I want you to use a rake to smooth out the side of this hill. So this is not the side of a hill like this wall. This is a quarter-mile section of Interstate 77 in a 70-foot embankment. You know, it's a three-day job. And then he would drive to Shoney's Breakfast Bar and get fatter. So you can see that I got a little pain working there. Um, He would come back at lunch. He would look at the hill that I had been... Raking, He would make fun of it. He would tell me to cut my lunch short, and other people too. He didn't just pick on me, he picked on all of us. And then he would go off and he would get drunk. It was pretty miserable. It was a good sort of introduction to the injustices of this world. And I came back one afternoon to Stockman Construction Company's sort of compound, where they kept all their equipment and all of their stuff. And uh, I don't know how this happened, I really don't. But Mr. Stockman, the owner of the company, saw me. He saw me unload the truck and put up the cooler, and I just would have to be back there in like nine hours to redo it again at five thirty in the morning. And he came out of his office and he said, "John, uh, I can tell it's been a pretty rough day." I said, "Yes, sir." And I knew Mr. Stockman knew his children had gone to school with his children. He said hey, do me a favor, why don't you meet me here tomorrow at 5.30? i got something we need to do in Barnwell, South Carolina. Now, I was preparing on that Friday to tell Mr. Stockman I was going to quit because he had hired me. And so I decided, well, this is a great deal. I'll meet him tomorrow. We'll drive to Barnwell, South Carolina. I'll quit on the way back. (laughs) He likes me. I took his daughter to prom. She was the homecoming queen. She didn't date me, but that's okay. Um... (laughs) She went on to make millions of dollars as a lawyer. Uh, anyway. So we get in the truck and we go to Barnwell. And I'll never forget this moment in Barnwell, South Carolina. We drove up onto a road they had paved and it was a cul-de-sac. And the road ran down through here, but they had paved the cul-de-sac too. And the back end of the cul-de-sac had caved in. had been a big rainstorm. The pipe had clogged up. It had washed out and that cul-de-sac had had fallen in, and we had to dig it out by hand and then hand pave it. And I'll never forget this. When the truck stopped and I went to get out, Mr. Stockman jumped out and grabbed a shovel, and he had three shovelfuls of dirt out of the ditch before I even got there. And that afternoon, basically that was 9 o'clock, from 9 till 3 o'clock, Mr. Stockman just buried me. Like he worked me into the ground. And if he told me to shovel this ditch, he shoveled two ditches. And I actually ended up working with him for about three more weeks. I didn't quit. And and this is what Mr. Stockman taught me a lot about leadership, but he really taught me more about just being faithful, because whatever he asked me to do, he did it first. Part of the reason they hired me that summer, this is hard to believe, But that summer, my jeans were 27 inch waist. I weighed 134 pounds. And they hired me so I could crawl into the pipes. Because in South Carolina, you're always paving roads with clay around them. And the clay would go in the pipe and it would harden. And you had to send somebody in there and dig it out by hand. And that first boss would drop me off at places and send me in ditches. He'd drive off to drink. Mr. Stockman would crawl in as far as he could. He didn't even fit. And he would dig it as far as he could. And then every time I would dig, first of all, he would tie a rope around me, which, looking back, should have scared me more than it did, right? <laughs> he was prepared to drag me out with a water moccasin locked onto my arm, possibly, or a cotton mouth. But Mr. Stockman, I can remember this. I would always see his face, you know, staring at me. Incredibly encouraging I would go to work for him again today. I think he just recently passed away. I saw on Facebook a great man. And I tell you that story tonight because whether you can say this out loud or not, many of you feel about the Bible. And here's our black Bible on our podium, right? Sitting here in our mind's eye. Many of you feel about this Bible the way I felt about my first boss. It's a slave master. It's a burden. It does not understand my life. It does not understand me. And I just want to get away from it. And God our Father understood that's how many of us would feel about it. And so He took this Word and He put flesh on it. That's why we picked this passage. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among Him. Jesus became like you so that He could understand what you're going through. And He could lead you to His Word and show show you how it understands you. See, the Word became flesh. Jesus took on flesh. This Bible put flesh on to show you that it actually does understand you. What I want us to do in our brief moments tonight is look at when that Bible took on flesh, how the flesh. So this is sort of one of those, you know, infinite loops. How the Bible, which is God made flesh, when it took on flesh, used the Bible, right? How did the how did the word made flesh, when it became flesh, use itself? And then I want you to see what he did with it, and I want you to see what that shows us tonight. So first, I want you to see how Jesus used the Bible. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. I'm not going to spend tons of time on this one, but a little. I want you to know that Jesus was saturated in the Bible. And that the Bible surrounded Jesus and everything He did. For instance, you may not know this because you didn't pay $16,000 to go to seminary, but I did. We have 1,800 words of Jesus recorded in the New Testament. 180 of those words are Him quoting the Old Testament. Now you would think if the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, A, God would choose to do it when we could have video cameras and we would just video His whole life. Now that would have been a bad Christianity because we would be obsessed with YouTube. What did Jesus do, really? And we would imitate it. But instead, when we had the Word made flesh, the Word Himself began to speak about the Word. Jesus was saturated in the Bible. He used the Bible. He believed the Bible. Jesus, in fact, fought spiritually with the devil and with Himself and would often use the Bible in that context. Jesus' main fortification of His heart was... The Bible. He was connected to the Word in deep ways. Like, I've heard some of you, not you particular, I'm, I'm doing this as a 51-year-old guy. I've heard young people say, right? Uh, I've heard you adults say, I'm not sure about the Bible, give me Jesus. People say this all the time. Yeah, yeah, all your Bible religion, yeah, just give me some Jesus. Eh, sorry. Jesus was saturated in the Bible. can't get to Jesus without the Bible. And Jesus was constantly demonstrating the usefulness and the necessity and the helpfulness of the Bible itself. There is no just give me Jesus without my big black Bible, which we turn into devices, right? The Bible's necessary. Let me give you an illustration from Scripture, right? Right? Jesus needed the Bible. You need the Bible. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, now that's an F3 workout right there, my friends. He was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, let's let's just for a moment stop So some of you don't believe the Bible to be true. Again, we're really happy you're here and I get it. But for those of us who do and for those of you who don't, let's at least enter into what the story's saying. This is the infinite, eternal God who made the devil. You're like, oh John, the theology with that problem. We'll get to that on a whole nother week conference. But let's just say He created all things when it was the devil. The devil comes to Him and says, hey, you're starving, make stones of bread. Jesus could have said, boop, done! That's what he could have done. He could have said, chump, shut it. (laughs) Talk to the hand, right? That's what he could have done. Could have kicked him. Could have put his foot on his throat. Could have done a lot of things. He had the authority, the right, and the power. Instead, he says, I'm going to quote you a memory verse from royal ambassadors, right? Man shall not live by bread alone. The story ought to scare the bejeebies out of you a little bit. He he is the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. Were he to play one-on-one with LeBron, LeBron would weep and suck his thumb in a corner and beg people to get him out of the arena if Jesus played one-on-one with him. You don't even buy it. You're not even sure he's powerful. He would dunk on LeBron and then quote Scripture in niceness to him. Brother, be warm and well fed. Come and dine with me. (laughs) Right? Like he's the infinite, eternal God. He can do whatever he wants at this point and he chooses to quote Scripture. So maybe he's saying, I'll pull out the most powerful weapon I have. Man shall not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him to the holy city because the devil doubled down after he got dunked on and reversed and elbowed down the forehead, right? So he took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. So the devil gets the game. I got some scripture for you. He'll command his angels concerning you, Jesus. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said... Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is really all I want you to see in this point. As you think about what it means to be a Christian, when Jesus came to walk intimately with His Father, He cannot envision doing it without the Bible. If Jesus, to walk as a Christian and to understand Christianity, had to use the Bible then we have to use the Bible. The Bible is crucial to any notion of not only what it means to be spiritual, but to be human. See, He was the Word made flesh. He became a human being. Jesus here is expressing, as it were, the highest form of what it means to be a man or to be a woman, to be a human. And what He says is at the center of that is using the Scripture to be whole. Using the Scripture to be human. He had become vulnerable, and in that vulnerability, what he needed was Scripture. Jesus used the Scriptures to walk with His Father. Which brings me to the second point. What Jesus did with the Bible is not only use it to walk with His Father, Jesus, and this has 2 subpoints. He gave us a rational argument and He freed us with His grace. Now notice this, and I'm going to stop as a caveat. Verse 16, from the fullness of His grace, we've all received one blessing after another. There are two things that I want to use here, and I'm going to admit to you as a preacher that these aren't the smooth two, but they need to be said, and this is the point to say them. The first thing Jesus did as the Word made flesh, what He did with it is, Jesus gives us an airtight argument. So, I said I would do this, and I'm going to just sort of do it right here. Some of you are legitimately going, John, it is irrational to believe that this Bible, your black Bible that your Baptist preacher punished you with clearly in your psychology, is a legitimate thing to say this is how God speaks to you. And I would just say this to you as a standing, strong A-minus liberal art major, right? With tons of philosophy... You can't prove to me that you're not the imagination of a butterfly. You can't. In fact, you might just be data on the RAM of a 7-year-old using his computer who imagines a world that's like Avatar. You can't prove it. Your basic philosophy professor says this. There is no rationality. I'm not like throwing out all argument, but here's the deal. Your worldview that starts with, there can be no God who speaks is no more or less rational than my argument that God used the Scripture to speak to you. It is not an irrational thing here. And I say that because God not only wrote it, He came and He lived it. So I'm going to just quote Tim Keller, so later when you try to fire me for plagiarism in this sermon, I'm going to use two defenses at this moment. Number one, Tim Keller is infinitely smarter than me. And number two, it's just Tim Keller, and you want me to quote him, right? If he were here, you would make me sit down because he would be LeBron coming down on my head, right? Now, he doesn't have the heart attack story, let's be honest. But other than that, he's better. Because what this passage is saying is that there is no, and this is the way Tim says it, quote, there is no airtight argument that can be made. Every argument can be seen through if we just go to its first assumption, prove you exist, prove you're not the imagination of the butterfly's brain. And you're going to struggle to prove that. So you don't have an airtight argument that's given to you, quote. What you're given in this case is an airtight person. See, Jesus is coming and he's living in such a way, and this is what we're going to look at the second part of this point. Jesus is living in such a way to prove to you that the Bible's true. See, you're not giving this argument in 1st Opinions 4 or 2nd Corinthians 3 that will win every discussion. Thank you for getting the opinions, the six of you paying attention. Thank you, six smart people up here. You're given a person. This is an airtight person. And we see this because He came to free us by grace. From the fullness of His grace, we've all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made Him known. Jesus came to explode into your life the fullness of His grace. This is an incredibly difficult thing to illustrate. But again, quote Tim Keller, what Jesus is showing us here is that there are only two religions. The purpose of His incarnation and the purpose of His teaching, the purpose of the Word becoming flesh is to say there's only two choices. You can name them what you want to, There's works, and there's grace. And Jesus is on the side of grace. That's what's being said here. That's what the purpose of Him taking on flesh is. That He would pour out grace upon grace. So so let me try to illustrate it this way. Let's think about the parable that Jesus used with the woman in Luke 6. If you don't know it, just briefly remember this. In Luke 6, Jesus is invited to a man's house to eat dinner. The man is bringing Jesus to his house because he wants Him to be a spectacle. And in those days, unlike what we're going to do this evening when we go out to eat, the way you entertained yourself, if you were middle class or impoverished, you're not going to believe this, you went and watched rich people eat. So the rich people would always have a portico on the back, and you would recline at the table, and it would only be men. And the men would eat and you would go and marvel. I mean, this is just TMZ before there was like the internet, right? And you would say, Oh, he's here, and you know, he drove up on that. He has that new donkey, right? He has the new donkey 629 version, right? And he had, you know, the wood cut. Co- like, this is actually what they did. So Jesus is invited to this man's house to say that he's something. And in the middle of this meeting, a prostitute is standing in the crowd watching the meal. Men and women. She does something unthinkable. She walks over to the table. She lets her hair down. So that's a stonable offense. She can be murdered for letting her hair down. We're not advocating that. But in that day, she could be killed for doing that. She begins to weep and wash Jesus' feet, right? Right? And the guy who throws the party thinks, if this man were a prophet, he would know who this is, that is a sinner who's washing his feet." And Jesus reads his thoughts. This is a bad afternoon for you." Jesus reads his thoughts and says, "I have a story to tell you, Simon. There were two men who owned a money lender, a bunch of money. one owed him about seven million bucks, and the other owed him about 500 bucks. But neither could repay him. So he forgave the debts. Who will love him more? Who will love him more? And Simon said, well, I suppose the guy who gets the seven million bucks forgiven, right? And Jesus turns and says, see this woman? Simon, she loves me more. Here's the great thing about that passage. And this is why Jesus took on flesh. Now, I'm just going to let it lie there. I'm not going to qualify. He didn't say, tonight she will repent and stop being a prostitute. She might have. We don't know. He didn't say tonight, she's turning over a new leaf. He just said, Simon, she understands she's a sinner, and therefore grace is blowing into her life like a hurricane. And you don't. You're standing over there judging me and judging her. Now, why am I saying that to you? Because Jesus came... To teach you to be this person. You're like, John, you just taught me at summer conference. I'm supposed to go home and be a prostitute. So just for the tape, that's not what I said. When your parent writes me the email about you told my son or daughter to be a prostitute, I did not say that. I get those letters. You go, i excited. John said I could be a prostitute and know about grace. That's not what I said said that Jesus always comes to pour grace into people's lives. Part of why He chooses... Like if, if you really start reading the Bible, I just picked that story because it's easy to tell. The Bible's not that complicated. That's every story in the New Testament. Paul murders people, throws them in jail. He's the one that writes the whole New Testament. The disciples, if you put the disciples in a K group... If you've ever been in a K group, like a discipleship group in your church, if you picked the disciples to be that K group, you would excommunicate them. They're the worst K group in the history of the world. They disagreed with the leader the entire time. Their leader was the infinite, eternal God, and they hated his leadership. Everybody in the New Testament is failing. And here's the question when Jesus comes and puts on flesh, can you just admit that? That he came so that you can stand up and say, I'm a failure. The reason I'm driving this point home today is because you're in a university and no professor gives good grades for that comment. None of you can go into the the semester and go, I know you gave four assignments. I know we had three tests. I know we had a big paper. I didn't do them all. I'm just looking for grace, right? Bono can can change the world with that statement, but it will not get you out of university at all, right? You get what we call an F a lecture from your parents and a bad summer internship. That's what you get for that kind of production. And yet, this taking on flesh was unto the ability for us to be able to say, I'm a failure. Jesus' fleshliness came really so that He could show you, I'm here to forgive. Before I move to the third point and let you go to dinner, I just want to say this. If tonight you think that Jesus came to fix you, I'm just going to ask you to stop. He came to forgive you. That might help you get fixed a little bit, but He didn't come to fix you. If you really know your heart well, you're aware that that fixing isn't so hot. That's why he knew he would be alone on the last night of his life. Because his K group abandoned him. He came so that people could confess, I can't be fixed. If you really want Him to fix you, this is the wrong group for you. He came to forgive you. The Word took on flesh to forgive you, which brings me to my last point. What Jesus showed us is that this Word was so powerful that He didn't want it to be broken. I'm not going to do a lot on this passage, but Jesus' taking on flesh was in order for Him to go to the cross. The purpose of the infinite Word, the law of God, which condemned us, becoming flesh, was so that it could be put on the cross and so that it can be shown not to be broken. And you see that Jesus does something amazing at the cross. And what Jesus shows you at the cross is that this book is about grace and it's about forgiveness. Now why would I say that? How did Jesus show us on the cross that the Word could not be broken? For instance, Jesus is in the, um, he's in the garden praying and He knows that Judas has betrayed Him and they're coming to arrest Him. When they come to arrest Him, one of the disciples gets up And he takes a sword and he's going to fight the soldiers. And Jesus says this, Put your sword back in place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? That's the LeBron sentence. This is what Jesus said. You see this army right here? I mean, if I wanted to, I could just wipe them out. But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? So I have a question. Imagine that the hardest event in your life is going on, and some of you can imagine that. Some of you have had people incredibly close to you die. Some of you had amazing suffering come into your life. So you can imagine the hardest day of your life. On the hardest day of Jesus' life, people are coming to arrest Him. One of His disciples has betrayed Him. We know that while he prayed, his sweat became blood, right? It doesn't get more intense than this. NBA Finals have nothing on this. F3 is a joke compared to this, right? This is the kind of suffering that is hard to imagine. And Jesus has a disciple lose control. See, what I would have done, like any good employer, is to fire the disciple. I'd have been, put your sword down, see the HR person, you're done, right? You failed the test. Jesus doesn't say anything, he goes hey, put it down, we've got to fulfill the Scriptures. It gets worse. They then take Jesus to the cross, right? And they do unspeakable things to Him on the way. They, flip, they whip Him and pull all the skin off His back because the whips would have had little you know, glass in it so that He begins to bleed, His back is raw. They then nail him to a cross. They lift him up on the cross. He can't breathe. He's suffocating. His body's cramping. And now he's come to the final moment. He's lost, as it were. He, he, he can't, as it were, hear God because he's going to scream, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? He's going to say that. Which is him quoting an Old Testament passage. And this is what the passage... This is I brought you here tonight just to say this. This is how important the Scriptures are to Jesus. He has no blood in his body, none, zero. He can barely breathe. He knows he's about to die. He cannot move. He has suppressed every urge in him to take the power that is his by right and deliver himself. He's the sins of the world are being punished in him, and this is what it says. This is crazy. This is insane. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished. This is the greatest mission in eternity. And Jesus knows it's finished. I've done it. This is way better than the last exam paper. I don't even have words for you. This is better. And so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. He did not say, I am thirsty. Because he was thirsty. He was thirsty. He's human. But that's not, he didn't go, just one more drink before I die. That's what I would have done. Knowing that everything would be fulfilled, he is showing you the greatest display of his love for you. He's taking everything that shames you. Everything that's been done to you and everything you've done, everything that will be done to you, everything you will do, he's taking it and he's bearing the wrath of God. This is the worst conceivable moment of his life. And this is what occurs to him. I have done it. My bride is mine. All of my inheritance is here. We've got to fulfill the Scriptures. The last moment of Jesus' life was not, I want them to know I love them, although it's clearly an act of love, so that the Scriptures will be fulfilled. He says out loud, I am thirsty. It's a stunning moment. The last thought of our Savior's life was to make sure the Scriptures were fulfilled. They handed Him the vinegar, and He said, it is finished, and He died. If the Bible is that important for Jesus, it's that important for us. Let me pray for us. We pray Jesus that with the same care and urgency with which You held the Scriptures, that You would move our hearts to hold it too. And we pray that You would teach us the Bible, that we might hear more about Your love for us and Your forgiveness of us, and we might feel more the beauty of its weight. We pray this, Jesus.